Welcome to the Viewpoint Podcast with your host, Henry Grosek. Welcome to Viewpoints listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to Viewpoints, Jane Caro AM, who's a Walkley Award-winning Australian columnist, author, novelist, broadcaster, documentary maker, feminist and social commentator. Jane spent 35 years as an award-winning copywriter and seven years teaching advertising creative in the School of Communication Arts at Western Sydney University. These days, she's a full-time writer, social commentator, speaker and broadcaster and she's published 12 books as well and uh, I don't know how Jane does it but we'll ask her that in a moment again. Welcome to Viewpoints, Jane Caro. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure, Jane, and as I said off air and I'll say it again and again, um, you're an inspiration and you're certainly a great torchbearer for public education, the field in which I work in Australia, So, so thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you for the work you do and thank everyone in public education for, you know, still shouldering the burden of making sure that every child in Australia gets the opportunity to have a decent education and they're doing it against the odds, which they shouldn't be. They should be doing it with the full support of everyone, including governments. Mm, Couldn't have said it better. Now, you wrote a piece which appeared in the Saturday paper recently, A Matter of Principals, Almost mm. a play of word. You might like to just elaborate to, uh, for the people who haven't read that piece what that was all about. Well, it was about um, the uh, governance of um, public school principals and teachers, which, of course, is a really necessary thing to have because, um, you know, it's a hugely responsible position teaching young people and, of course, running a school. And so um, human beings, all of us being fallible and, you know, all of that, it is really important that there's strong oversight of the people who do that. And, indeed, I sometimes wonder if the reason that um, public education came out of the Royal Commission into um, institutional responses to child sex abuse, um, you know, they came out of it a lot better than other forms of education. The other systems and other types of schools, the ones people pay money for, interestingly enough, um, that they came out of it with less of a, um, you know, a criticism was because of the strength of the governance uh, of our public education system. Um, But the article was really saying Nevertheless, we have to make sure that uh, strong oversight and, um, you know, uh, procedures that make sure that if somebody's done the wrong thing that they're, um, you know, checked and investigated immediately don't become so onerous that uh, principals become frightened to do anything because basically we've got a society where there are lots and lots of cracks. You know, our society is not functioning I think as well as it once did and the mental health issues and lots of other issues that are coming up show themselves in schools as they do in every other um, part of our society. And often those cracks can be something that the principals have to take care of, have to uh, be diplomatic about, have to balance lots of different, some not entirely sane, um, you know, uh, requirements. Um And on top of that, the job itself is becoming more and more onerous, the kind of responsibility that principals have to take. And also we concentrate disadvantage in the public education system because we have a kind of apartheid in Australia in our education system. We we, um, separate the uh, kids who are born more fortunate often in fee-paying schools and, um, you know, 
therefore some of our public schools really get the, the, the lion's share of the kids who were born behind the eight ball or were born less fortunate and bring with them great levels of um, difficulty and problems, which principals of those schools then need to handle. And so we want to be careful that principals have confidence that the system which monitors them and makes sure they're doing the right thing is a hum human and humane system so that if the complexity of the job means that somebody stuffs up, which will inevitably happen as things become more and more complex and difficult, there will be times when, you know, um, with the best will in the world, something goes wrong, that that will be dealt with um, in the same spirit. So there will be an understanding of mistakes made responsibly as opposed to mistakes made um, more venally. And that requires that people feel that the governing bodies, the, the people who do the governance in New South Wales, the system I know better because that's where I live, it's called um, PES, Professional Ethics and Standards, uh, Professional Ethical Standards, and they, you know, will manage uh, allegations of wrongdoing or mistakes by principals and teachers and investigate them. And uh, there have been complaints in the past that this was not being done in a timely fashion, that it wasn't transparent, that principals who were taken out of their job, sometimes just marched off the premises with no notice, uh, were hanging in limbo for a very long time, not knowing what they were accused of, and that this had had a chilling effect on the entire profession. Uh, there was a review in New South Wales um, in 2019 run by Mark Tedeschi, QC, um, which said that these things were very important, that timeliness, procedural fairness were um, vital they did not think that what was then called EPAC was um, doing the wrong thing, but that um, because of lack of staffing, sometimes things like timeliness and transparency were falling off the edge of the envelope and that had terrible effects on the people who were um, waiting for to know what their fate was. Well, what I was reporting on was that those same rumblings are happening again and somewhat worryingly of the eight New South Wales principals who are currently on other alternative duties, as it's called, six of them are women. And this concerns me that eight is double the number that were on in that situation when Tedeschi did his review in 2019. So that's also, um, you know, something that needs uh, thinking about. It could just be a coincidence. I don't know. Um, but six of them are women. And again, that could be perfectly reasonable. But we do know and I've written about this before, that women principals have a particular degree of difficulty. They're often much more vulnerable to bullying, uh, often unfortunately by male parents um, and members of the community, but also they are often held, as women in positions of power and authority so often are, they're often held to a higher standard than their male colleagues. So there will be complaints about them that might not be made about a male principal in the same situation because sexism, of course, um, is part of every organisation and every part of our society as long as it's part of our society. So I was really doing a look at um, the good thing about the fact that we have this very robust and uh, vigorous um, uh, governance system for public education. I think that's terrific and everybody agreed that it was. But the, the responsibility then is that all investigations are, are uh, transparent in the way that they are um, run and that the uh, decisions are made in a timely fashion. So um, that was really – and that we need to be really careful that it doesn't 
frees the profession so that they are too afraid to do new things or, um, you know, do something brave that some members of the community may not be 100% on board with but which they're doing for the very best educational evidence-based reasons or that it actually makes people shy away from taking on the job of principal because it's becoming so onerous and they are starting to feel so very unsupported. A lot of this has to do with what happened it's happened a long time ago in Victoria, but certainly in New South Wales, uh, local schools, local decisions, which is a devolving back of responsibility to individual schools for things that certainly in New South Wales, the education department used to do. And that's made the principal's jobs, again, more onerous, more complex, more difficult, more time consuming, more exhausting. And as we all know, that's, you know, when people get exhausted, that's when uh, mistakes get made, things fall off. And we don't want to create a system where exhaustion is an occupational hazard and therefore mistakes become more frequent and then we get this terrible um, ripple effect of people being under investigation and shamed and their careers ruined. Mm. So that was what the article was about. Excellent summation and couldn't agree with you more. It segues well into the, the, the second point, which is um, here in Victoria especially, uh, we're finding it increasingly difficult to attract people to even apply for principal jobs. I, I can recall, Jane, perhaps some 20 years ago, I used to sit on a lot of panels and you'd get 20 or 30 applicants for a principal's job. Nowadays, if you get five, you know, you, you, you crack the champagne corks. People don't want the job and that's, uh, that's a terrible indictment of, of what we're going to be offering our children. Your thoughts on that topic? Yeah, broadly? yeah. Yeah, well, that came out of that. I certainly uh, mentioned that in the article, and I've, that's been an issue for quite a long time. I remember writing about it probably a decade ago. The and this is not just in public education. The Catholic system has also been saying that they're finding it harder and harder to find people to apply for principals' jobs, um, and I think it is because it is becoming this really quite. Um, vulnerable position where everybody turns around and blames you for what's going wrong in society. Um, the first cry you hear whenever there's any kind of moral panic about anything is they should be teaching this in schools, they should be doing something about this in schools. Well, you know, <laughs> schools are already doing absolutely everything they can. So it's like they sheeted all home straight away to the schools and then the, all the departments have, you know, drunk the neoliberal Kool-Aid about, you know, um, back away from having any responsibility, which seems to be the new the new small government mantra, you know. I'm not sure what governments do if they don't take any responsibility, but that seems to be where they're at. Um, I wish we'd stop voting for people who don't believe in governments. Um, and basically the school principal then becomes responsible for all the things that once upon a time a department would look after. Um, this makes the job, even if you're the most... Uh, effective, efficient, uh, decent, honest, straightforward, winning, charming, psychologically together human being on the planet, almost impossible. So that is why people are uh, looking at the um, game of prince being a principal and, and deciding it's not worth the candle. And indeed, in the article, I quote someone who used to be a principal, loved it, but left and then became a uh, works supporting other principals and he said if he was asked to return to being a principal today he'd say absolutely no way wouldn't do it and he also now gives advice to deputy principals don't apply for a principal's job 
just don't do it. It's the job is almost impossible. This is a really difficult situation and very dangerous for the education of our children. Um, and so we really need to have a long, hard look at not just how we've got shortages of teachers, which certainly um, we've seen New South Wales rolling strikes uh, over the whole of this year, particularly in regional areas where schools um, staff have just walked out for a few hours and said, we can't cover classes and we haven't been able to cover classes for months and months and months. Um, but it's also now becoming incredibly difficult to um, get principals to go to regional areas, to hard to staff schools um, and really to any schools at all, much harder than it was in the past. We can't keep doing this. We have to re-look at uh, how to run our, um, how to make these jobs doable um, so you can have a life and be a principal and have a life and be a teacher and also not live in fear that someone will turn up on your doorstep and march you out as, you know, do a perp walk because of some complaint from some member of the community. Is the same guy who said he'd not be a principal now. One of the reasons he gave was that, and these are his words exactly, the attack can come from anywhere. So there's so many people who can decide to take out their uh, disgruntlement, their um, anger, their own mental um, anguish, whatever it might be, on the principle. That's a good point, uh, Jane. When do you take a short break? Can you hold the line? Sure. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. I'm in the middle of a discussion with Jane Caro, who's a Sydney-based novelist, writer and documentary maker. We were talking about the workload of principles before the break. Uh, welcome back, Jane. Oh, it's nice to be back. <laughs> it is. Now, Jane, your own education, um, what, are your, what are your memories of that and how has that shaped some of your views and attitudes towards the profession now? Well, I was very fortunate. Um, I went to um, New South Wales public schools from the minute we migrated to Australia when I was almost six. Uh, so from year one, uh, first class, as it was called then, all the way up to um, what we called sixth form, but um, now, of course, is year 12. And then I was one of those um, very lucky people who got a free university education, thanks to Gough Whitlam. Mm. And the public schools that I attended in uh, New South Wales, in Sydney, um, back in the 60s and 70s were, not only were they really high standard, but at that time almost everybody sent their children to public schools. You were either a very devout Catholic or um, extremely wealthy if you sent your children to a private or a Catholic school. That was relatively unusual. And so the great thing about the school I attended, uh, my all the primary schools and high schools, was that um, they were, the whole community went. You know, there was everybody there. My father was a company director, uh, but some of my friends' fathers were plumbers and garbage collectors and, you know, um, labourers and all that kind of thing. So it was just, and you didn't know and we didn't care. We never asked what someone's father did. You know, you just, it wasn't interesting. You, you liked the person for being a person. But it was the wonderful um opportunity to mix with everybody, your neighbours, you know, the people who lived in the same sort of area as you did. And I think we've lost that. And I think it's been an enormous and powerful loss um, for Australia. We've lost this knowing our neighbours. And, you know, most of us, when we went to school, we didn't get driven to school. I, I walked to primary school until I went to, um, I got a 
got to go to the in New South Wales we have opportunity classes where they give you an IQ test and I got to go to one and so I caught the local bus to Chatswood Public and then we moved to Terry Hills and I caught the school bus to Forest High but most people either rode their bike or walked or caught a bus and so we didn't have this huge you know hitting the road every morning you can see every time school holidays come the traffic not in COVID obviously but when when times uh, are not in lockdown um the traffic just disappears in school holidays it's it's cut by a huge amount so we're we're driving our children all over the city or the area to in the search of this spurious better school the best school for your child is the one that's nearest to you um in my view and if it isn't then then the governments should be held to account and made to turn it into the best school for your child every school should be an excellent child for every you know for every child and this weird thing people have that somehow the school that's hardest to get to is the one that's right for their kids is bizarre but it's so um deeply felt mm. it, it comes down to that term that's uh See, seems to play out for our, our system in Victoria, which is part of the Australian system, mm-hmm. and that is the public-private one. It's all about choice. 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 Oh. oh, nonsense. No, it's not about choice. And it's certainly kids have no choice and never have. It's only parents who have choice. And this may come as a shock to everyone listening, but parents have had their education. What it's about is the education of children. And how on earth do we justify, because really only about 30% of parents have any real choice anyway in terms of being able to afford fees, even so-called low fees, particularly if they low to whom, low in comparison to what? What? So uh, 2000 a year is considered low in comparison to the 50000 a year that some schools may charge, yes, but Nevertheless, if you've got more than two or three or four kids, that's um, not a low fee decision at all. Um, I mean, it's awful to hear about people saying, I'm, I'm only having one child because that's all I can afford to send to school. Well, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, so choice is spurious. Only a certain percentage of very fortunate parents really have complete choice. And even they are limited by geography. Choice in schools doesn't work. You can't have, you actually can't have compulsory schooling for all children above a certain age and parental choice. You can't have it because what that, the two are actually in opposition because what that ends up being is there will always be schools that are seen as the school of choice in a particular area. And that means there'll be a school that nobody wants to send their kids to if they can possibly avoid it, which ends up, as I was talking about before, being the school with all the concentrations of disadvantage. So it becomes a vicious cycle. It's a disaster. And it's the disaster in particular for our most vulnerable children who end up being the ones in those schools that all the parents with any kind of choice, you know, back away from. And I can tell you right now, right now, which school will be at the top and which school will be at the bottom in any particular area, which means it's got nothing to do with the quality of the school. What are all the teachers there? What the, the school that will be the so-called best school, the one that everybody wants, 
um, in any area will be the one that uh, has some kind of ability to choose kids based on academic um, performance. Now, that will either perhaps be as it is in New South Wales, we've got a lot of selective public schools, whether you do a test and you can get into these particular schools, or it'll be the highest fee school in an area because fees are a sorting mechanism. And we know that the biggest predictor of how you're going to do at school is how you, you know, your parents' income status. That has a huge effect on how you'll do at school, particularly mothers income and education has a huge effect on how children will do at school. In fact, if you've got a mother with a university degree, you'll probably send your kid to any school you like. They'll do well. And you can pay as much money if you, as you like if you've not got that and it's m more difficult. not going to say impossible at all. It isn't impossible, but it is less likely statistically. Then you will go to um, the next uh, school will be the all-girls school because girls do well at school and perform well. It doesn't matter if it's public or private. Then you'll go to the co-ed school that's got, um, you know, a, a mix of girls and boys. And then the bottom school, the one that everyone goes, ooh, in almost every area will be the boys' public school. <laughs> you know, and that's the way it goes. And it's got nothing to do with the teachers. It's got nothing to do with the quality of the principals. It's got nothing to do with any of that. It's got to do with the way we se separate and segregate our kids because that's what choice does. It's a form of apartheid, educational apartheid. And what it does is it says that the fortunate kids will load them with even more good fortune. Good fortune they, they don't need. People keep saying, we keep upping the education, you know, budgets and it doesn't do any good and it doesn't make any difference. It's all the teachers' fault. That's because we put the money behind kids who don't need any more money. We give millions of dollars to schools that charge, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 and above thousand a year in fees. They don't need any extra money. So it's just buying, you know, ridiculously luxurious accoutrements that do nothing to improve those kids' results. And indeed, their results do not go up. They're already doing fine, but it doesn't. All this money doesn't make any difference. But the kids at the bottom where a bit of extra investment, you know, smaller classes, more um, intensive uh, work to make up for um, the lack of uh, social and intellectual background and capital that those kids bring with them through the school gate, where that money really could make a difference, we don't spend it. We don't give those kids enough to overcome the, the educational uh, deficits that they were born with by being born into simply families, might have English as a second language, might live in a rural or regional community, might, um, you know, come from families with high levels of uh, dysfunction or mental illness or drug abuse or whatever. We all know that that has a huge effect on children's cognitive development and their ability to do well at school. And instead of investing in those children, we spend it all on the silver tails. And then we wonder why our education results, in fact, don't improve and may in some instances be going backwards. Well, it's hardly surprising. Absolutely. And it's certainly not the teacher's fault. Oh, couldn't have put any of that better myself, Jane, than what you've put it. And it's it's great to have such a great advocate for the education of our children. Um, so all our children, all our children, not simply those born lucky. And at the moment, Australia appears to be only interested in the education of children born fortunate. 
Absolutely. Jane, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program and there are so many other areas of the education system that we could have delved into and there's so many opportunities that I hope we don't continue to lose or waste in providing an education for all our children. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Henry. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. That was Jane Carr, a great advocate for public education per se and education of everyone, really. It's not just the, it's not just the public kids who benefit from having a, a system that's fair, inclusive and equitable. We'll take a short break. Uh, don't go away. You've been listening to the Viewpoints podcast, hosted by Henry Grossek and produced by Rob Kelly. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rate us via Apple Podcasts. 